Well, good evening again, everybody. We're glad you're here. Tonight, before we begin, let's have a word of prayer together. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for your blessings and mercies to us. And Lord, as we open this chapter in the book of Revelation, we ask for your spirit to be with us, to guide us, give us understanding and truth, especially as we move into the prophetic parts of it, as we look at things that are yet ahead. We ask for your wisdom and guidance. In Jesus' name, amen. Tonight, I want to begin by reviewing chapter 15 of the things we talked about last week for those who were not able to be here. Last time, actually, the the chapter 15 is shorter. Chapter 15 actually is more of an introduction to chapter 16. And so it gave us a little bit of time to pick up on some more of chapter 14 that we had to kind of breeze over. So I spent quite a bit of time on that. So we needed to add new discussion on some of the scenes that were in chapter 14 and try to point out how chapter 14, 15, and 16 are related. They're basically all talking about the plagues and building up toward it, the seven last plagues. Chapter 15, we observed that the preparation of the seven angels uh, is mentioned there prior to their pouring out their bowls upon the earth. We also saw that there were a number of people who had resisted and overcome the beast, his image, his number, and his mark, standing on the sea of glass. And they were singing the song of Moses and the Lamb, which only the redeemed saints were allowed to sing. Angels cannot sing that song because they have never felt redemption. They, they were either saved or lost, but they never were redeemed. And so this is something that only the redeemed can sing. And uh, no one could enter the temple until the seven last plagues were completed. Smoke filled the temple. So it shows us at this point that we have moved beyond the investigative judgment. We have moved beyond the Day of Atonement experience in the heavenly sanctuary. And now we're moving toward the executive judgment, part of the uh, judgment. And what takes place at this time? Let's look at chapter 16. The closing verse of chapter 15 uh, unfolds one of the most arresting scenes in the whole book. When the seven angels go forth with the vials of wrath, the scripture says that they went forth until their work was finished. No man was able to enter into the temple. The gospel message of invitation will have been heard by every soul on earth. That's why you don't need the temple anymore, because they have either accepted or rejected. They've either been pronounced clean or unclean at this point. And men's opportunity for salvation will have passed at this point. And the door of mercy will have been closed forever. That's an awful sad thing, isn't it? The door of mercy will have been closed forever. 
Now, some commentators try to make this prophecy of the seven plagues run parallel with the seals and the trumpets, etc. Because they all have sevens in them. But in reality, this is talking about something special here. That really can't be. For the plagues are poured out already. We saw in the seals and the trumpets that there was still opportunity for people to repent. But now it's behind us. These are poured out upon those who have received the mark of the beast. And that mark will not be received until just before Christ comes. We find that the mark of the beast is predicted in the Bible, but the world has not had the opportunity today to make a decision for or against the, the subject of a national Sunday law and some of these other issues that attack the commandments of God have not been brought fully to the ripening where everyone is faced with, whom shall I serve? Shall I serve the commandments of God, or shall I serve the commandments of men? And until that happens, we still have not yet gone into national apostasy, although I think we're moving that direction very quickly. And so we find that here, these things are yet before us. And as we look at this, These judgments, and they are judgments. Uh, Even now, there are judgments going on in the world. We find that a lot of things that have been going on politically, be sure your sins will find you out, and they're catching up with them. And so there are judgments that come out. There are different diseases that are going on because of societal sins. But these are different. These are special sins. These are sins that men refuse to repent of. And they wait till they're past the time of repentance. And then these will be poured out. So these judgments fall after Christ has finished his work of ministry in behalf of sinners. Furthermore, the scripture declares that these plagues shall come in one day. Death and mourning and famine. Now, it will come in one day. Boy, if all these things fell at one time, there wouldn't be much left on the earth, would there? So, if we have been talking in prophetic language up to this point, then should this not also be prophetic language? Is this a literal day or is this a prophetic day? And a prophetic day equals what? One year, right? It appears that these fall over the course of a year's time. And notice also, when it talks about mourning, mourning for their sins, they are to mourn for their sins before the uh, tabernacle service is closed. After that, those people who have not repented, it doesn't bother them to sin anymore. What are they mourning for? They're mourning because they got caught with their hand in the cookie jar. You see, it's, it's one thing to be sorry for your sins from a heartfelt, sincere repentance. It's another thing to be sorry because you got caught, you see. And the punishment that comes with it, 
Before Christ comes, there will be a famine, a famine of hearing the word. People will be seeking, running to and fro in the scriptures, seeking what the knowledge is of the word of God. But there comes a point after which, when they have said no so often, that even running back and forth in the scriptures, they won't find truth. Even though they may be looking for it, but that time will be past. Not only that, too, but I think there are also literal implications on some of this, too. Because when you look at some of this destruction that's going on, you can see that there may be some literal application, too. Let's look at the plagues. We've already mentioned that a day of prophecy is a year. It's evident that this could not possibly be a literal 24-hour period. For no famine could result, a literal famine, could not result in so short a time. No matter how bad the conditions are. You know, if a famine struck today, if you had any food left over, you'd probably eat that, or else you'd live on your fat for the next day, right? Some of us would live a lot longer than others, perhaps. But we would live on what we've got. So it's unlikely that this is coming in a literal day. It sounds more like it's referring to a prophetic day. Moreover, the scripture indicates that some of the same men who suffered under the first plague will suffer under the other plagues as well. And it's therefore evident that these uh, judgments fall on the same generation. There are some who say, well, it falls on different generations. No, it falls on the same generation. And it will last through the prophetic day or a liberal year. Now let's look at these plagues as we move into this chapter. A number of the prophets have described the effects of these judgments. Isaiah and Joel in particular. Joel, in Joel 1, 17 through 20, it says that the seed is rotten under its clods. In plain words, when the dirt is so dry that the seeds are dried up under it. The corn is withered. The flock of sheep are made desolate. The rivers of water are dried up. And the fire hath devoured the pastures. Well, doubtless had a spiritual application in the days in which Joel was writing them. Yet, It was the day of the Lord that it particularly is addressing here. That's what's being described in verse 15 and also in chapter 2, verse 1. Let's look at what it says in Revelation 16, 1. And I heard a great voice out of the temple saying to the seven angels. So this voice is coming from the temple. Now remember, nobody can go into the temple. But this great voice is coming out of it, talking to the angels that have the bowls in their hand. Go your way and pour out the vials of the wrath of God upon the earth. Or some say the judgments of God upon the earth. Look at verse 2. And the first went and poured out his vial upon the earth. And there fell a noisome and grievous sore upon the men which had the mark of the beast and upon them that worshipped his image. So this mark of the beast, and those who followed the image to the beast, 
they had a great sword that broke out upon them. It was grievous. It was noisome. The first plague is a grievous sword which falls upon those who have the mark of the beast in Revelation 16.2. Before the angel pours out his vial, the whole human race will have divided itself into two classes. Those who are sealed with the seal of the living God. The Holy Spirit is sealed within them. They have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. I like to call that the mark of the best. And those who have received the mark of the beast, they are the second class. To the one class who are under the protecting wings of the Almighty, the promise is made, Thou shalt not be afraid for the pestilence that walketh in darkness. A thousand shall fall at thy side, and ten thousand at thy right hand, but it shall not come nigh thee. Neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. In Psalm 91, 5 through 10. So, what does this mean? It means even though the plagues are being poured out, God's people are protected. God sends his angels to watch over them. And now don't think that they won't go through some suffering before then. Because the devil's going to do everything he can to do them in. But when this starts happening, God intervenes. Let's look at verse 3. And the second angel poured out his vial upon the sea. And it became as the blood of dead men. And every living soul died in the sea. Now, notice it was like the blood of a dead man. Okay? What color is the blood of a dead person? Color of a live person? What color is the live person's blood? Anybody want to give us an example? (laughs) No, it's red, right? But when you leave blood around too long, what's it do? It clots and becomes kind of a lumpy blackish red or purplish or whatever you want to call it. Am I right, doctor? And you see, it says that the water apparently becomes like the blood of a dead man. And notice it said, and every soul in the sea died. Now that's interesting. Does that mean the mermaids? Uh, Does that mean the people in the submarines? What does it mean, the soul in the sea? Thank you. It means the fish. It means the living creatures. Now notice, the Bible calls the little fishies and the whales and little crabs that are crawling around there, it refers to them as souls of the sea. Why? They have a body. They have breath. Therefore, they are a living soul. They don't receive a living soul. They are a living soul, you see. Just like human beings. If you have your body intact, and you have the breath of God in your nostrils, you become a living soul. You want to see a living soul? Ta-da, you're looking at one. Okay? The moment one or the other is removed... I am no longer a living soul. I am a corpse. So what is death? 
death is the reverse of creation. You see? It's creation in reverse. And so when it says the souls of the deep die, it uses the same word, basically, that is talking about when man was created. There are those who believe there's the breath, there's the body, and then God sticks something else in there called the soul. And when you die, that soul goes back to God. You cannot support that with Scripture. And here it doesn't say anything about the soul of the little fishies going up to heaven, you see. And not only that, too, but there are those who believe that the soul is immortal. It cannot die. Then why does it say in the Scriptures, the soul that sinneth, it shall what? Die. So living creatures... The word soul in this context simply means living creatures. Okay? And as we look further, notice it said the third angel poured out his vial upon the rivers and the fountains of water, and they became blood. Now, it doesn't say here they became blood as a dead man. It may be that it coagulates too, but usually you think of a a notion is the water being pretty well stable, whereas a stream of water, it's flowing. That's what living water is. It's water that flows, you see. That's the difference between living water and a pool. One's moving, the other isn't. And we see here that now it's not just the oceans, but under this plague, the third plague, even your drinking fountain turns to blood. Why does God do this? Because these wicked people have taken the blood of God's people over the centuries. In plain words, God is returning to them the very uh, penalty that they placed upon God's people. Now, it's interesting. We mentioned earlier at another meeting that in ancient Egypt, the plagues that fell each one of those plagues that fell attacked something in their religion. And notice here that the Egyptians thought that the river Nile was a holy, sacred river, you see. And I don't know if if we're talking, you know, like the river Ganges, that's a sacred river. But whatever it means here, we find that it appears to turn to blood. Let's look at this a little further. The second and third plagues fall upon the waters, turning the sea and the water supplies of the nations into putrefaction. Now, don't forget, this is worldwide. This isn't just isolated to our country. So some of this may affect some areas more than others. But notice, it turns them into putrefaction resembling the blood of a dead man. When the oceans become uh, a place of death, the inhabitants of every country in the world will be affected. But God's people need not fear. Remember our friend Elijah when they were looking for him and there was a famine in the land? God still provided his bread and water. Didn't give him cake and ice cream. He gave him bread and water. He provided for his needs, not always his wants, but his needs. And we find that he even 
sent a bird to feed them. You know, so we find that God has mysterious ways that he can do things. But God's people need not fear. Some of the most beautiful promises in God's word reveals his plan to protect his chosen ones during those awful days. Here's one. When the poor and needy ask water and there is none and their tongue faileth for thirst, I, the Lord, will hear them. I, their God, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open the rivers in high places and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land sources of water. That's Isaiah 41, 17 and 18. And again, he shall dwell on high. His place of defense shall be the munitions of the rocks. Bread shall be given him. His water shall be sure. Isaiah thirty-three sixteen. There are many people today who are storing up guns and ammunition and food and water supplies because they're going to protect themselves in the day of trouble. You know what, friends? If people really want those things, they're going to get them. And we find that your food will rot on you anyway. Your water is going to pollute anyway. It's better to depend on the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't take precautions. I mean, even in the wintertime, it's always wise to get in extra food. If you know that there's a hurricane coming or a tornado coming, uh, well, tornado, you may not have so much time, but you may want to get enough water and food and so forth in. But that is to carry you over. But we cannot have the attitude that we are going to protect ourselves because we will have to be dependent on God for everything. And his supply is sufficient for our needs at every time. Look at verse 16, 5. And I heard the voice of the waters saying, Thou art righteous, O Lord, which art and wast and shall be, because thou hast judged us. Wast and art and shall be. Huh. Now, God the Father's been around forever, right? He is, he is, he is. But you see, the angel says of the Lord, you're the one that was, you came to the earth and became, and now you are forevermore. One has died and come forth from the grave. And who is the judge of the earth? It's Jesus, right? It's Jesus. God has given the judgment. Now, we need to get this straight, though. God has given the judgment of the righteous into the hands of Jesus. The wicked are already judged by the very fact that they're not redeemed, right? And we find that if the Father and the Son are both going to come in judgment of the earth, this applies whether it's the Father or the Son. Look at verse 6. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink, for they are worthy. Now that's why it's called the wrath of God. 
you see. Because God is coming to bring judgment to the earth without the mercy of Jesus intervening. To be in the presence of God without a mediator between us is destructive. The wicked are consumed by it. And notice he says that God is coming with retribution. This is a retributive retributive uh, judgment we're talking about now. God is punishing those who are not worthy. Why? Because those who were worthy, they shed their innocent blood. This is important. Whether you're talking about abortion or you're talking about bombing some city, you need to take into account innocent blood. You see, there are some people who may be guilty and deserve whatever their, their penalty is. But what about the children? Remember, he spared Nineveh because he said, oh, the, the city's full of people who don't know the right hand from the left. They don't know right from wrong. And there's much cattle there. Isn't that interesting? God spared Nineveh because of the cows and the sheep and the creatures. They were innocent, you see. And so God, God has a heart of love, but yet that love has been spurned. And as a result, they have spurned away the mercy of God. Therefore, God's mercy is one side of his character, the other side is judgment. And I've mentioned before that I'm right-handed and I love my right hand, okay? But if my hand, as much as I want to keep it a part of my body, if my right hand got gangrene and that gangrene was working its way up my blood vessels and making its way up toward my heart, and the doctor said to me, look, your only choice is to remove the arm or die. I would say, here, doc, take my arm. You see, that's a strange thing to ask somebody to cut your arm off, isn't it? That's why God, this is called God's strange act. When he has to destroy the wicked. Why is it a strange act? Because it's so much against his love. And that's why I think God has tears in his eyes, even when he has to execute Satan. Because he's still his creature, you see. We can never put down the love of God. The question is, do we love him back? And if we don't love him back, we're going to spread that gangrene into the recreated earth. And so God has to deal with it. For him not to deal with it would be unmerciful. And I heard another angel uh, out of the altar say, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. Now notice, even though these things are punishments, they're saying from out of the, the temple, that's where the altar is, they're saying this is righteous what you're doing. Why is it coming from the altar? Remember it talks about the saints under the altar, 
that their blood cries out saying, how long, how long is this going to go on where Satan and his followers can just abuse people and kill people and work injustice? And God said, hold off a little longer. There's more that has to take place before I can close that chapter. And so this is what it's referring back to. And they declare it. These are created beings who are declaring, what you're doing is righteous, God. Look at verse 8. And the fourth angel poured out his vial upon the sun, and power was given unto him to scorch men with fire. Now that's interesting. And men were scorched with great heat and blasphemed the name of God, which hath power over these plagues. And they repented not to give him glory. This is interesting. The sun God has always been a counterfeit all through the scripture that plagued the children of Israel and has plagued the worship of the true God. When he set up the sanctuary in the wilderness, when they went to worship, they had to turn so that their back was facing the east. The temple entrance was facing the east. Why? So that the worshipers and the high priests going in, the sun was always to their back. Because the pagans turned to face the sun and worship the sun. Matter of fact, there's one song that makes me nervous that most people don't even know. And I'm not sure. I think it's still in our hymnal this way. It says... Uh, this is the Gaither song there um, when it says um, we'll break bread together with our face toward the rising sun. Oh, you never catch a Jew doing that with his rump toward the rising sun. Not his face. You see. And that's where the concept of sunrise worships come up. On Easter, people have sunrise worships that's actually coming out of paganism. The sun god has always been a counterfeit. And it crept into the Christian church. A lot of these halos you see on statues, you look closely. Even a picture of Mary holding, a statue of Mary holding the baby Jesus. If you look carefully, there's one of those statues. She's holding the sun in her arm. This concept of sun worship has always been a counterfeit. And this is the, one of the reasons why the sun day is replacing the Lord's day. The day that the Lord has created, now instead of it being the Lord's day that John was in spirit on, In later centuries, that began to move over and be used with regard to Easter, which came only once a year. And then they started to apply that same terminology to every week, you see, in honor of, quote-unquote, the son of righteousness. But in reality, it was bringing in this pagan influence so that they would have greater effect in their ecumenical movement to bring in pagan religions and blended with Christianity. And so, what is he saying? 
you love the son so much, I'm going to give you the son. And the very thing that they worshipped, and I can't help but think of a lot of our friends who, I mean, I believe in conservation. I used to teach nature at camp all the time. You know, I don't believe in destroying nature. God says I'll just, that I will destroy those who destroy the earth. But there are some people who, if they had their choice whether to let a child die or to cut down a tree, would take the tree. You see, and we need to be careful that we don't make nature God. Because nature worship is better known by its old-fashioned name. Today we say, well, you know, uh, I'm a nature worshiper. In reality, that is synonymous with I am a pagan. Paganism is nature worship. And so we find here, he says, you want the sun? You got it. And the very thing that they worship now brings torment upon them. And what do they do? They blame God for it. God gave them what they wanted. And they still had not repented. As we look at the fourth plague, we find that the fourth plague is poured out on the sun, which is given power to scorch men with heat. Their only response is to blaspheme the Almighty. They cannot repent because repentance is the work of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has been withdrawn from the wicked. But before the plagues fall, the Spirit of God will have been withdrawn from the earth and sealed in the hearts of those people who have been purified in Christ. Let's look at verse 10. And the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seed of the beast. And his kingdom was full of darkness. And they gnawed their tongue for pain. You know, gnawing your tongue. Do you ever bite your tongue? There are times when I should bite my tongue and I don't. But uh, do you ever gnaw your tongue? I had a tooth pulled a while back. And uh, he numbed my jaw. And then he said, okay, give it about now or so for it to wear off. And you know how that goes. And so don't eat for a while. Well, I guess I waited about an hour and a half. And I put something in my mouth, and I started chewing it. And uh, I thought I was chewing the food. It's my tongue. And I got this big canker sore in there. You can imagine a person gnawing their tongue for pain. I think the pain is not as much physical as it's the realization that here they thought they were saved to discover they're lost. This is a pain of agony and anguish. And they blaspheme the God of heaven because of their pain and their sores. But they repented not of their deeds. There are those who say, well, let's give him another chance. Maybe he'll repent. Let's give him another chance. Maybe he doesn't understand Maybe we need to labor with them more. How many times does he ask to tell you no before you believe him? And so we find that these were people who had repeated opportunities and they did not repent and their deeds followed them. Look at the fifth plague now. 
The fifth plague is poured out on the seat or the throne of the beast, plunging that kingdom of error into dense darkness. Why? Because this is the power that has built up Babylon and the confusion in the religious world. There is a similarity between these plagues and the plagues that fell on Egypt. Those, however, were judgments on one small country, while these seven last plagues affect the whole world and men of every nation. When Egypt was dark, there was light in the dwelling of Israel back in Egypt. God protected his people even then. We need to realize that there were ten plagues that were poured out on Egypt the first time. Three of those, even the righteous had to go through. That was their time of trouble. But when the last seven of those original ten plagues was poured out, it was not poured out upon the righteous. It was only poured out upon the wicked. And you notice here, it doesn't say anything about three plagues before it starts talking about these. The righteous have already gone through their time of Jacob's trouble. They have already made searched their souls. They have already asked God's forgiveness. They are cleansed. They are spared. But these people, the spirit now has been withdrawn and the door is shut. And therefore, they're the ones that would be affected by it. Now, a lot of these are traumatic things. A lot of these, I think there's going to be both physical phenomenon. I think there's also spiritual phenomenon involved. And don't think that the righteous won't witness it. They will. Don't forget during the flood, during the time of the flood, the whole world was in upheaval. Do you think that the ark was soundproofed? Do you think that that was all insulated? Had shock absorbers on the the bottom of the ark or something? Don't you think the people inside the boat could hear what was going on outside? You could hear the thunder and they could hear the wind and the waves. They were tossed about, but they were protected. They were shielded by God's mercy. That boat couldn't have saved them. I mean, one wave could have smashed the thing to bits on a rock. The thing that really saved them was their faith in God. And it was only a small remnant. Eight people isn't much out of the whole world that were saved. And the Bible talks about a remnant of people who will have the kind of faith to be able to stand during this time period. But God protects his people. And it says, And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. Now remember, I mentioned to you in previous study, but when we talked about Daniel, when Babylon fell, What did King Cyrus do to bring the downfall of Babylon? He diverted the Euphrates River 
so that it didn't flow into Babylon. And then he, coming from the east, the king of the east, he and Darius, they went in and they captured Babylon. Don't forget, it was God who left open the two-leaved gates right in front of the palace. He had a part to play. God says, I'm going to leave the doors open for you, but you've got to dig the ditch yourself to divert that water, right? So we find that the waters were diverted in preparation for the kings of the east to come. Now, King Cyrus is a type of Christ. He was the deliverer who came and delivered God's chosen people who were in Babylonian captivity, delivered them out of Babylon, and gave them permission to go home. Set them free. Christ comes, delivers his captive people, and he will deliver them to freedom from sin. You see the the type and the play that's going back and forth? When something's mentioned in the Bible here, and it's mentioned there, those two thoughts in Hebrew thinking are connected, no matter where they're found in Scripture. And so we find he's making illusion for this. Now, water usually symbolizes people in prophetic uh, language. In We find that it represented... Um, uh, in the time of Darius and the time of Cyrus, did I, I said Cyrus, didn't I? I meant Cyrus. Uh, in their time, it was the literal water that was dried up. But this water, water can also represent people. The people who supported Babylon are now turning against Babylon. They're realizing that what they thought was religious correctness was not religious correctness. And now it's too late. They find themselves lost. Babylon doesn't have the support it once had. This is just before the return of Christ. It makes way for the coming of Christ. Look at 13. There's something else that comes into play here. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon. Luck. I wouldn't want a frog in my mouth, would you? I know, some people eat frogs' legs. I'm just as happy to let the frog keep his legs, I'll keep my legs. There are times I put my foot in my mouth, but uh, I don't want any frog's feet in my mouth. It says that they were unclean spirits. They were like frogs, slimy. They came out of the mouth of the dragon. What does the dragon usually symbolize? Satan, spiritualism, spiritism, mysticism, non-Christian religions, counterfeit religions. And we find that it came out of the mouth of the dragon, which is inspired by Satan, and out of the mouth of the beast. Now, the beast power, we've seen earlier, that the beast, the description it gives, seems to indicate a religious power power that blended church and state and claimed to speak for God and could forgive sins. 
and had claimed authority over the souls of men worldwide. And so we find that this also, an unclean spirit, comes out of its mouth and out of the mouth of the false prophet. Now, this false prophet also claims to speak for God. John the Baptist was a prophet who spoke for God. What was he doing? He was saying, I'm not the Messiah. I am speaking for the one who is. Well, if the beast claims to be the only means of salvation, and the false prophet turns people's attention and says, listen to him. His holiness can tell you the way to salvation. No matter what the name of the church may be, Protestant churches that have gone into apostasy and are now saying it's all right to worship Mary and the saints. It's all right to accept the commandments of men over the commandments of God, they aren't speaking the truth. Because the Bible says Jesus is the only mediator between man and God. And that he's the only one that can forgive our sins. And we are to worship him, not other glorified human beings. And so we find here that this is a blending of several different things, which I'll touch on again in a moment. Look at Revelation 16, 14. And they are the spirits of what? Devils. Satan is working behind each of them. Now, I am not talking about people. I am not talking about people. God loves everybody. He even loves the wicked. Jesus came to die for the whole world. It doesn't say the good guys and the bad guys. It says the whole world, good and bad. But who are the ones who love him back? Those are the ones that he redeems, you see. And here we find that the spirits are spirits of devils. And notice what they're doing. They're working miracles. That's why in the last days, you can't rely upon what you see or smell or taste or feel. Because the devil can deceive you. The devil has the ability to do miracles. Moses goes in before Pharaoh and he says to Aaron, throw your rod down there. He throws down his staff and what happens? Turns into a serpent. And Pharaoh turns to Jasper and Jambres, his his court uh, magicians. He says, hmm. Can you do one up on that? And they said, sure, he's got one snake, we got two. They throw down their rods and they turn into snakes. Now, that's a miracle. I mean, I don't care if they were dead or alive snakes, they turned into snakes. But what was the difference? Aaron's rod swallowed up the other two. That must have been a pretty hungry snake. It must have been a pretty big snake, too. I don't know how tall these guys were, but I'm sure their staffs were at least my height. And for them, that snake to swallow two of them. And then he says to Moses, Moses, go over and pick him up by the tail. 
well, I don't know if I, you know, I don't know if I have that kind of faith, Lord. He just swallowed two snakes. I don't want to be number three. But he said, okay, Lord, you said so. So he goes over and he grabs him by the tail, lifts him up, and he's got a rod in his hand. I don't know if it was any fatter than it was before. But he, the rod is back again. You see, the devil can perform miracles. And we've got to be careful that we don't base our religion on that. I have a videotape at home. It's put out by, a, actually, I think the Baptist put it out. I don't know who puts it out. But it's on the apparitions of Mary. Sometime, if you want, maybe I'll, I'll show it to you guys. But it shows these people who are seeing apparitions of Mary and the people who are turning out for it. And some said, my crucifix, it was silver, but she turned it into gold. Others said, I could see the statue crying. And I mopped it with a, a, a cloth, and it was blood. Now, can the devil do things like that? I think he can. I'm not saying, you know, I'm not saying the source of it. But I do know that we are not to be worshiping Mary. As good a lady as she was, she is not an object of worship. See, we need to be careful. You can venerate things. Uh, There have been many good people in history even in the Catholic Church, religiously, Mother Teresa, you know, now she's Saint Teresa. Before she was just a human being, but now she can intervene with you for God and answer your prayers. According to Scripture, Mother Teresa is still in her grave, waiting for Jesus to come. Then who is it that people are praying to? We need to be careful we don't blend spiritualism together. When Pope John Paul II said that Mary appears to him and tells him what different things he needs to do. Well, if Mother Mary is in her grave, who is appearing to him and telling him these things, you see? And Saul, he goes to the witch of Endor. Now, you can't get too much more spiritualistic than to go to a witch. Because witchcraft, God puts a a death decree on those who practice witchcraft. And by the way, the drug traffic is considered part of witchcraft. And those who go to witchcraft and ask to bring up Samuel, why do I go to a witch to raise a prophet, true prophet of God? And the thing that came up was not the true Samuel. It was a deceptive spirit. By the way, it's also interesting. He didn't say, bring down Samuel. He said, bring up Samuel. Why? Saul knew, and so did the witch. No, Samuel was in his grave. A good man as he was, he wasn't in heaven. And so we have to be careful about some of these teachings. And notice, what was the purpose of it? It was to consolidate them. And to bring them together, why? It says to gather them for the battle of that great day of God Almighty. 
What is the ecumenical movement doing? We find that apostate Protestantism is now reaching across to Rome, clasping its hand, and we see miracles in some parts of the world being done. People speaking in tongues that never did before. And these things are preparing people for a one-world religion. It's all right. You can, you can remain Methodist. You can remain Lutheran. You can remain Catholic. You can remain Jewish. You can remain a Muslim as long as you accept me as the supreme authority of religion. And what's the one thing Satan wants most of all? Worship. And that's the one thing we cannot give him. All right, let's look at this note here. When the sixth angel poured out his vial, the prophet John says, he beheld three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, Revelation 6.13. In ancient Egypt, the frog was an object of veneration and worship. Three black frogs were a symbol of their pagan spiritual deity. See, they had a trinity. They had three black frogs that would symbolize it. And what do we see here? We see coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. The same principles or teachings that Satan is behind. The introduction of this symbol of the frog into this uh, prophecy is arresting. As is well known, this little creature hibernates. That is, it disappears for a time only to return and disturb us with its croaking. It'll croak for a while, then it'll disappear then it'll come back and croak some more. Did you ever try to sleep in the country near a pond when the old bullfrogs are out there? Ah, you know what I'm talking about. So paganism and spiritism disappear, as it were, for a time at least, at least in this Western world, still uh, prevalent in other parts of the world. But these are reappearing under many disguises. They're appearing under different names and uh, different movements. Pagan thinking has entered our educational classrooms. Evolution is a part of that. It even claims many pulpits. There are those who are preaching things that are unbiblical. There are some Christian churches that are even preaching reincarnation. That is not a Christian doctrine at all. In the final scenes of Earth's history, paganism, spiritism, under the cloak of religion, are to exercise tremendous influence. Is there any reason why this isn't all called Babylon? The word Babylon means confusion. And this is confusing truth and error, mixing it all together, no matter who it comes from. Now notice that these unclean spirits come from the mouth out of the mouth of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. The power of lying propaganda was amply demonstrated in the Second World War. 
they would deliberately put out false information to try to distract people while they were doing something else. The power of propaganda is well known, but it will reach its maximum under the sixth plague when the spirits of demons will gather the nations of the whole world, what for? To battle against God, the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Now notice this clasping of the the hands. The Protestant churches whose founders went to the stake for their faith will be foremost in stretching their hands across the gulf to grasp the hand of spiritualism. They will reach over the abyss to clasp the hands of the Roman power. And under the influence of this threefold union, this country will follow in the steps of Rome in trampling on the rights of conscience. This is what's ahead. What is the common factor of Catholicism, Protestantism, and the heathen world today. It's the teaching of immortality of the soul. You don't really die when you die. You just go somewhere else, you see. And if I can only get in contact with that one who has died, or if that one who died came back to me, I would be able to know the future. Why do you suppose Nancy Reagan used to go to a uh, spirit medium to ask her consultation before she would allow her husband to make important decisions? There are many civil leaders today who are consulting spirit mediums. Even police departments, if they can't find a missing, missing body or something, they will bring in somebody with ESP uh, or, or a spirit medium to help them to solve the crime. Well, I'm sure that would be the right person to bring in because who's the one that committed the crime? It was somebody working for Satan, right? So, of course, he knows where the dead body is. And he'll reveal it to them and they'll say, oh, what a wonderful person this is. We can use them in other areas too. And you see how deceptive these things can be. And notice that it's the Protestants who take the initiative to reach out to Rome. And the Romans, they're sitting there saying, I can't believe all this is happening. I can't believe this. They're they're asking us to be their spiritual leader. It's interesting that Martin Luther they're going to be celebrating this is it this year? No, next year, 17, which is basically this year coming on. <clears throat> They're going to have a big celebration of the 500th anniversary. They're going to have a big celebration. And the Catholics and the Lutherans are going to celebrate it together. Well, if I understand history correctly, wasn't Martin Luther complaining about the teachings and doctrines of the Catholic Church? Who moved? I don't think it was the Catholic Church. I think it was the Protestant churches 
that have forsaken many of the things that Martin Luther was advocating, and they're now coming back into the fold for the sake of unity. What are they doing in Russia now? They're trying to bring the Orthodox Church back under the fold again. And so we see this ecumenical movement, and let's not quabble about insignificant things like righteousness by faith and justification by faith. We'll work that out later. Let's just love one another. We just need to love everybody, and everybody will get along. Can we just get along? Put aside those silly, insignificant things like the scriptures and immortality of the soul and uh, praying to Jesus. Eh, If we have to go through Buddha, so what? We're all going to go the same place, aren't we? Well, with that kind of philosophy, yes, we are all going to go the same place. And that's not the place I want to go. I want a fire escape. And Jesus is that fire escape. He's the way out of that place. And so we find that Protestant churches, their founders would roll over in the grave. They gave their lives for this. The Albigenses and the Waldenses, they had to go up and live in the caves in the mountains because they stood on the principle that no human being could forgive sins and that the Bible is the basis for all religious belief rather than the traditions of men. These are the people who would be the foremost in stretching their hands across the gulf. And notice that these three forces, once they clasp together, they form a union. Now, they may have different names, but they will be one in purpose And what is that doing? It's consolidating those who do not have faith in the word of God and in Christ. They will follow in the steps of Rome, trampling on the rights of conscience. You know, any religion that has to depend on the state to support and enforce its religious doctrine is a bad religion. Because a true biblical religion will stand on its own two feet. It will have people come into unity because of faith in the word of God. But when we have to compel the state to enforce our teachings, then there must be something wrong with our teachings. And anybody who gets in the way, we're going to trample on them. This is the reason why the Constitution of the United States, right now, the Constitution of the United States, except for the intervention of God, the Constitution is the only thing between us and persecution. And to say that the Catholic Church is the great defender in America today of religious liberty is to put the fox in charge of the chicken coop. And we need to be careful because when these things come about, you will find yourself in difficult times. As spiritism more closely uh, imitates the normal Christianity of today, it has greater power to deceive and ensnare. Satan himself is converted after the modern order of things. And notice he joins the church. Isn't that nice? Satan joins the church. 
He did in the time of Constantine. Why not now? Through the agencies of spiritualism, miracles will be wrought, the sick will be healed, and many undeniable wonders will be performed. They will profess faith in the Bible and manifest respect for the institutions of the church. Their work will be accepted as a manifestation of divine power. They'll do many good things. They'll do many miracles. And don't forget, we said before the true Jesus comes back again, who comes pretending to be Christ? It is Satan as an angel of light. That's what we talked about last week for those who weren't here. You might want to get the CD on that. So we find here, this is from the book Great Controversy, as you were referring to, Linda. Notice verse 15. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth. That means keep your eye on things, folks. Keep your eyes on the news. And keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked, and they see his shame. Why is he naked? He's not clothed with the garments of Christ's righteousness. And he discovers too late that he's naked. Reminds me of the emperor's clothes. Remember that story? Look at 1616. And he gathered them together into a place called, in the Hebrew tongue, Armageddon. This is the harvesting now. We're moving to the harvesting time. You know, he's gathering them together. Now, Armageddon, that's a very interesting word. I've had a lot of people give me all kinds of definitions of Armageddon. But really, let's look at it. Through the combined influence of Spiritism, Roman Catholicism, apostate Protestantism, and by the way, I under Spiritism, I put all of the non-Christian religions in there. Everything from shamanism, to Jainism, to Buddhism, to Hinduism. I put them under spiritism, especially Hinduism. They got more more um, gods than Carter has liver pills, you know? Uh, so we put those all in that lump. And notice, too, and the world will be led not to peace. They're saying, let's pray for peace. Am I going to pray to Buddha for peace? Am I going to pray to Mohammed for peace? No. Or I'm going to pray only to the God of heaven for peace. So they'll be praying for peace, but there is no peace. Instead, it's for war that they're being gathered. And the war will be against God himself, in Revelation 16, 16. It says the nations are gathered together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. Now, Through the centuries, many ideas have been advanced and expressed concerning Armageddon. Unfulfilled prophecy has always been a fertile field for human speculation. Palestine may well be a storm center of the world. There's worldwide conflict going on there all the time. But the battle of the day of the Lord God Almighty will not be confined to any one land in particular. The issues are much larger than many have imagined. It is not geological location that the Lord is emphasizing here as much as it is the revelation of the issues that are at stake. Now, the Holy Land will be involved 
Obviously, it's part of the world because every land on earth will be the scene of this last great struggle. There are some people who are packing up and moving to Israel because they want to be there for the coming of the Lord. Well, you've got to remember all this stuff is going to happen worldwide. The kings of the earth and the whole world, it says in verse 14. Notice the kings of the earth and the whole world <clears throat> will be involved. It would be physically impossible to gather all the armies of the world on one battlefield. The word battle in this verse is translated from the uh, Greek word uh, polemos. Now, polemos, or polemos, we get the word polemic from it. Polemos, and sometimes pronounced polemos, which is often translated as war rather than battle. So those two words can be interchangeably used. It may be either a single encounter or a series of encounters that makes up a polemic um, situation. In this death struggle between the combined powers of darkness and darkness and hate and the legions of light and love, their adversary, the good and the bad, are against one another. The whole world will be the battlefield. And so terrible will be the slaughter in that day that they shall not be lamented, neither gathered nor buried. Now, why will they not be gathered and buried? If this is affecting the whole world, and when we left off, Christ is getting ready to come, what's going to happen to the righteous? They're going to either be changed if they're alive and taken up to meet the Lord in the air. Satan can't duplicate that. If he walks around on the ground, you know it's not Christ. The righteous dead, they will be taken up. Those who are living at the time of Christ's coming it looks like they're going to be done in. It looks like they're going to lose the battle. But God sends his angels to protect them until Christ actually comes. And when he does, the wicked trying to get out of his, his way fall dead. Well, if the righteous go to heaven and the wicked are dead, who's left to bury them? You won't even find a squirrel or a chipmunk to bury them. Everybody will either be dead or gone because that's when we're caught up in that general resurrection at Christ's return. Soon, very soon, will be fought the last great battle between good and evil. The earth is to be the battlefield. That's why when we speak of Israel, we are speaking of God's spiritual Israel worldwide because God is no longer a respecter of uh, inheritance or heredity or uh, race. It's God has people all over the world. He's called them out of their pagan and false religion to the word of God to stand by faith waiting for him to come. And the earth is to be the battlefield, the scene of the final contest and the final victory. Here, where so long Satan has led men against God, rebellion is to be forever suppressed. This is Ellen White speaking in Review and Herald, 
May 13, 1902, page 5. So, here's another quotation. This is from the book Testimonies to the Church, volume 6, page 406. The battle of Armageddon is soon to be fought. He, on whose vesture is written the name King of Kings, Lord of Lords, is soon to lead forth the armies of Satan. The battle is between heaven and earth, Christ and Satan. And Christ is coming to finish the conflict. Notice, describing this tremendous scope of the, this conflict, the Apostle John says, These shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, Revelation seventeen fourteen. Again he says, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him and against his army. Revelation 19, 19. Make war occurs 16 times in the New Testament, nine of them alone in the book of Revelation. So what's the real issue? Who but the most spiritually blind could fail to see the shaping world events that will lead to the final battle which ends with the misrule of men and ushers in the long-expected kingdom of peace. The real issue at stake in Armageddon will not be so much material and international as spiritual. We're going to be in spiritual conflict and, and uh, face some of the same struggles as our friends over in China. The real issue at stake in Armageddon is not so much the material, even though there will be a material aspect of this, you've got to admit. It will actually be a struggle between the devil and the wicked nations on the one side and God and his people on the other. W.H. Branson, Drama of the Ages, page 533. So tremendous will be that conflagration that were it not for the fact that God sends down his mighty ones to protect his people, they would be wiped off the earth. In the midst of the time of trouble that is coming, God's chosen people will stand unmoved. Satan and his host cannot destroy them, for angels that excel in strength will protect them. Just when they think they're about to do you in, they fall the whole plan is dissolved as Christ comes back. And they are the ones that have to flee. Testimony, volume 9, page 17. So, this is describing this great conflict. The prophet Joel says this, Thither cause thy mighty ones come down, O Lord, in Joel 3.11. The battle of the great day of God Almighty will cease, not by the quest of one nation over another nation, or one group of nations over another group of nations, but by the sudden appearing of Jesus Christ as he comes in power and great glory, the wicked will flee in terror. And so we move into the seventh angel's message as we move toward the end of this. So all of this is building up to the climax now. The seventh angel poured out his vial into the air And there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, It is done. Did you ever hear that before? 
What did Jesus say at the cross? It is finished or it is done. In plain words, at the cross, Jesus' work as the Lamb of God was completed. Then he became the high priest. Now, here, he's coming to deliver his people, his work as our mediator and high priest. It is done. Now he takes off his high priest's robes. He puts on his kingly robes. And he comes as King of kings and Lord of lords. It's another phase that we're moving into here. And notice it says in verse 18, And there were voices and thunders and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such as what was not since men were on the earth. So mighty an earthquake and so great, when the seventh angel pours out his vial, a voice from heaven is heard, to say, it is done. Then follows the lightning, thunders, and great earthquake, the like of which has never been seen since men were upon the earth in Revelation 16, 17, and 18. Notice the brightness of his coming. This will be the overwhelming evidence of God's supreme power over his enemies. When the sleeping saints are raised to immortality, here comes the immortality of the soul. Only God has immortality today. Human beings do not. Dead people do not have immortality. They will get immortality when Jesus comes. They will be raised to immortality. And the living saints are caught up to meet him in the air. They are given immortality. The wicked who have refused salvation will flee in terror. The wicked dead, they stay dead only to be destroyed with the brightness of his coming. 2 Thessalonians 2.8 points that out. What a scene of victory and tragedy. Victory for the saints, tragedy for the sinners. And may God help us today to be ready for that great event. That's not as far ahead as we think it is. It's closer than when we first believed. And in Revelation 19, the 1619, it says, And the great city was divided into three parts, <clears throat> and the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon came to remembrance before God. He remembers what they did. To give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. God pours out his wrath. And notice, there's physical phenomena that takes place at this time, too. This is no secret rapture. When Jesus comes back to rapture up the saints, it's noisy. Nobody could keep that secret. Notice, every island fled away and the mountains were not found. Something's happening geologically on the earth. Great Babylon, the symbol of an apostate world, now receives her full judgment. Islands flee away and the mountains are not found. Now notice this, hailstones weighing 50 to 100 pounds fall from heaven. My Bible on the note compromises and puts 75. Sounds like Desmond Dawes, you know. He says he only saved 50 lives. They said he saved 100 lives. So they put on the record 75 as the official number. And so we find here, Some suggest that the 
the bombings that have taken place in recent times were fulfillment of this prophecy. Well, the Lord said in Job, he says, Hast thou entered into the treasures of the snow? Or hast thou seen the treasures of the hail, which I reserved against the day of battle and war? Job 38, 23. What is that saying? It's saying that God already has reserved those big hailstones. Man, I used to bowl with a 16-pound bowling ball. That's a heavy bowling ball. If I dropped it on my toe, just standing up, I'd think I'd get a sore toe. How would you like to drop that from a couple of thousand feet up in the air. And that's only 16 pounds. Imagine a 100-pound bowling ball. As you look at this, notice Isaiah 28, 15 and 18. It also talks about these things. Daniel speaks of it as the time of trouble such as never was in Daniel 12, 1. Then he adds, thy people shall be delivered. Every one shall be found that shall be found written in the book. What book? The book of life. This is why, and this is where the book of Ruth comes in so nicely. It uses similar terminology. Before the coming of this day of destruction, God sends an invitation to all to gather and seek them. Those who heed his message will be sheltered from these plagues. See Zephaniah 2, 1 through 3. For the Lord shall be the hope of his people, Joel 3, 18, uh, 16. Psalm 46 and 91 are both moving descriptions of the time of earthly calamity. But God's people will be protected under his wings. That's what under his wings means. It means God will protect you just like a mother hen protects her children. In a forest fire, they found, uh, what was it? No, it was a chicken house fire. They, they found the body of a mother hen. And when they lifted the hen, she was, she was burned to a crisp. They lifted the hen up, and there's the little chickie still underneath her. She gave her life to hide them and shelter them under her wings. This is what this is referring to. In the midst of all the conflagration, that's the burning and conflict, the resurrection will take place. Amid the reeling of the earth, the flash of lightning, the roar of the thunder, the voice of the, of the Son of God calls forth the sleeping saints. This is when he speaks with the voice of the archangel. He says, push back the evil angels and take my children. You know, it's interesting. It mentions about the reeling earth. Do you know what kind of calamity that would happen? That would cause? Last time I can think of where the earth may have been reeling on its axis was at the time of the flood. Because it's the moon, the sun too, but mainly the moon that causes your high tides, right? And your low tides. When they're pulling toward the moon, that's a high tide. When they're not, that's a low tide. But what happens 
if the the earth turns around and makes a 90, I mean, a 180 degree turn, and all of a sudden, the water that was over here now starts rushing back. No wonder the islands disappear. No wonder there's confusion in the atmosphere and there's lightning and thunder and and tornadoes and hurricanes and everything. I think that would kind of make me a little nervous too, wouldn't you? And if it wasn't for the fact that God's sheltering his people, it's like Noah's family being on that ark in the midst of the flood. And so we find in all of this, God protects his people. In the reeling of the earth and all that's going on, the Son of God calls forth his sleeping saints from their grave. In verse 21 it says, And there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent. <clears throat> and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail. For the plague thereof was exceeding great. I think they would be upset. I would be upset if I got hit by those, those uh, hailstones. But yet, they continue to blaspheme God. So as we come to the end of chapter 16, we really are moving beyond that now, but not quite yet, because he still has to talk about the power that has helped create all this problem. And when we get into the next chapter, we start getting into the great harlot of Babylon, and in, uh, that's in chapter 17. And when we get into 18, Babylon the Great is destroyed. I would really like to try to combine those two chapters, but the rate I'm going, I may not be able to do that. But I will endeavor to. In summary, what we talked about in chapter 16, we talked about the seven angels pouring out their bowls filled with the wrath of God upon the wicked, and they fell within a year's time. The first bowl was the sores on those who had the mark of the beast, the foul sores. The second, the sea turns like blood of a dead man and the creatures die. The third, the rivers and the springs of water are like blood. The fourth, the sun scorches men who blaspheme God. The fifth, the throne of the beast is darkened and is in darkness. They chew their tongues in pain because of not repenting. The sixth, Euphrates dries up for the kings of the east. Three frogs preach to lead men to a worldwide Armageddon battle. And then the seventh, we hear, it is done. I've had enough. And Christ starts to come. And when he does, here on earth there's all kind of violent natural events taking place. Babylon is punished. The angels, protect, the angels protect the righteous. Christ comes, and the panicked wicked die fleeing. And thus we come to the end of that chapter. And uh, if I, with the time I got started late, I still have time to give you a quiz. Okay. I let you out of the last one. Sadie's shaking her head. No, I let you out of the last one. I'll give you a quiz tonight. Okay, real quick though, I'll give it to you. You can write it down or on the paper I gave you or something else. Number one, at the exodus from Egypt, 
There were ten plagues. There were only seven last plagues. The blank did not experience three of the ten. The blank did not experience three of the ten. Number two. With the seventh plague, Jesus repeated what he said on the cross. Blank, blank, blank. You can use two variations of that. Number three. Blank is reserved till the plagues that weighed five to a hundred pounds each. That sounded like it was worded improperly. Number four. The great battle of blank comes with the sixth plague. Number five. The throne of the blank blank is darkened and tongues are painfully gnawed during the fifth plague. And then the bonus point. Three blank gather the wicked for the last battle. All right. I'm sure you didn't get it from my reading them. You can pick them off the board. All right. Are you almost ready? Need more time to scratch your head a little bit? Okay. Number one. The exodus from Egypt, there were ten plagues. There were only seven last plagues, however. The righteous did not experience three of the ten. And, or you could have said the Israelites or God's people or whatever. All right, number two. With the seventh plague, Jesus repeated what he said on the cross. It is done or it is finished. He said on the cross, it is done, is comparable. Number three. Hailstones are reserved to the plagues that weigh 50 to 100 pounds each. Number four. The great battle of Armageddon comes with the sixth plague. Number five, the throne of the beast is dark and tongues are painfully gnawed during the fifth plague. And number six, the bonus one, three frogs gather the wicked to the last battle. Anybody get them all right? Oh. Anyway, your homework, we read chapter six. Now, for next time, I want you to read chapters 17 and 18 because they're talking basically about the same thing and the printed material I have for you will combine them. I will endeavor to get through both of them at once. If I cannot, I'll break them up, okay? And then invite somebody to be with us. Until then, shalom, let's have prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your blessings. Help us to be in Jesus. Help us to be protected by your angels in these these plagues that are before us, and to know that your grace is sufficient for us. We are, not to, we are not to operate from fear, but rather from faith and trust in you. And Lord, we look forward to the coming of our Lord, who will deliver us from every trial. Keep us faithful until the end. In Jesus' name, amen.